0: From WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, welcome. I'm Warren O'Destillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents interviews of ordinary people who choose the Baha'i faith as a way of life. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Mark Henson, a Baha'i from Long Island, New York who discovered his calling in social work when in college. He discovered the Baha'i Faith from an ad in the newspaper. He's written an introductory book on the Baha'i Faith called Divine Journey, Exploring the Baha'i Faith. I started the interview by asking Mark where he grew up, and what was it like growing up there.
1: I grew up in Smithtown, Long Island, which is a town around 60 miles east of Manhattan. I lived here all my life. It's a nice town to grow up typical suburban Long Island town. We had good schools. The neighborhood I grew up in was very nice, had a lot of friends there. Um, I lived in different parts of the township. It's kind of like just a typical Long Island town. Right. If you know anything about Long Island history, after World War II and really into the 1950s and 1960s, there was a large exodus out of, out of New York City, and many people settled on Long Island.
0: What was your religious experience growing up?
1: I'm from a Jewish family. Mm-hmm. I, w- I attended synagogue, went to Hebrew school, mm-hmm. was born mitzvah when I was 13. Mm-hmm. But basically, I've always had an interest in all, even growing up uh, Jewish, I always had an interest in learning about other people's religions. Mm-hmm. Especially when I went to college, it really became more pronounced where I started to explore, you know, look into the different philosophies and the different religions. Mm
0: hmm. And what were your interests growing up?
1: I liked sports. I wasn't the most athletic child, but I enjoyed following sports. Mm-hmm. And I uh, played in Little League. I enjoyed reading. Mm-hmm. And still like, I still enjoy reading. As I said, I had friends with whom I enjoyed getting together and socializing with. I had two dogs mm-hmm. who were a very important part of my life. I was of the children my family. I kind of took the responsibility of being the...
0: Dog caregiver. The dog
1: caregiver, <laughs> yes. Feeding, walking, playing with the dogs. Yeah. And what else? I played the accordion. I mentioned I was raised Jewish in the 1960s. The accordion was a very popular musical instrument with many Jewish families. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it's not as popular anymore, but my brothers and I, we both took we all took accordion lessons. And to this day, I still enjoy playing the accordion.
0: That's nice. Yeah. You you went off to college after yeah high school. Uh, I
1: graduated uh, from the, the high school I, I attended was Smithtown East, mm-hmm. and I graduated from, in 1977, showing my age, and mm-hmm. just had my 30th uh, uh, high school reunion. As a matter of fact,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I attended college at the State University College of New York in Oneonta, which mm-hmm. is around five five hours from where I uh, was living. Mm-hmm. I got my bachelor's degree there. I'm a social worker by profession, mm-hmm. and later on I went b- back to college at the State University of New York at Stony Brook and got my master's in social work degree.
0: Okay, Stony Brook being in Long Island. Long Island, yeah. Yeah. What did you do after you got out of college?
1: Initially, I, I, gradu- I graduated college in 1981, and I went straight from undergrad to grad school. I went to the University of Connecticut School of Social Work, but I was only there for one year. At that time, especially, many people who were going for their master's degree in social work had many years of experience. Uh, there were literally more people my mother's age than my own age at the college. And in consultation with the advisors, they thought it would be better off for me to get some experience and to return later on to get my uh, social work degree, which is what I did. So after that one year at the University of Connecticut, I worked various odd jobs. I did recreation therapy at, at a few different nursing homes. I tried, uh, if you remember the magazine, uh, Highlights for Children. Oh, yeah. It's very popular in dentists and doctors' office I wanted to try sales. I figured, you know, everyone would like to have, you know, good educational material for their children, would want their children to learn to read well. And I did that for a little bit, for almost a year. But sales just wasn't for me. I was not a very effective salesperson. Mm-hmm. In 1984 is when I got my first real social work job. I was working for a foster care agency in Forest Hills, Queens. Uh, the name of the agency was Brooklyn Home for Children, which was somewhat confusing for people because it, it, it started off in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and in 1941 it moved to its current site in Forest Hills, but they kept that Brooklyn name. So it was always confusing. I said, i worked for Brooklyn Home for Children, but it's in Forest Hills, Queens. Yeah. They since changed the name to mm-hmm. Forestdale. Services. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I was there from 1984 to 1988, and that's when I returned to college to get my, uh, returned to Stony Brook to get my master's in social work degree.
0: Mm-hmm. So what did you do there?
1: At the Brooklyn Home for Children? Mm-hmm. I was a caseworker. I had a caseload of around 20 children. These were children who were placed in foster care, either voluntarily placed by their parents because they were going to their own personal difficulties and realized that they could not give the children the 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 care and attention that they really needed Mm -hmm. and voluntarily placed their children care while they addressed their particular problems or they were removed by child protective services which is the more common of the two Mm -hmm. where a report is made to child protective services that the children are being somehow neglected and or abused and they investigate if they found that the children are in imminent danger Mm-hmm. They would re- remove the children from the home and place them in the foster care agency, such as the one that I worked, mm-hmm. and would be assigned to a caseworker, such as myself. And as a caseworker, I would be responsible for working with the children, seeing them in the foster homes, referring them for any services that they may need, working closely with the birth parents, referring them for services, whatever led to their children being removed from their care. Often, not always, but often drugs somehow played a part. Either directly or indirectly, in referring the parents for drug counseling, uh, setting up visits for the children with their families, and monitoring how that goes. A lot of the parents they were young and and didn't have the proper parenting skills, so be referring them for parenting counseling uh, and helping them with a with a wide scope of services that, the, that they may require.
0: So did the children's age range from infant to 18?
1: Actually, it's anywhere from birth up to 21. Oh, wow. It used to be that when you reached 18, you were, uh, if you were still in foster care, you'd be automatically discharged, and mm-hmm. that if you want, needed to stay beyond 18, you would have to justify why you still needed to remain in foster care. And what's happening, a lot of youth were being, were being discharged at 18, we're not really prepared to live independently, and tragically, many of them ended up homeless. So, they since mm. changed the law to where now, if you are 18 and want to leave, you would have to show how you're able to provide for yourself. Mm. it's you felt that you really couldn't provide for yourself. And let's face it, 18, many people, even at 21, many are not prepared to live independently on mm. their own. Mm. In New York State, several years ago, they changed it to where. If you were not adopted, if you were not able to return home to your parents or to a fa- another family member, that you would remain in foster care up until twenty-one years of age. I'm uh-huh. working for another agency doing uh, same type of work. I'm mm. now a supervisor though, yeah, and it's it's still the same.
0: Yeah. So, Mark, what got you interested in social work in the be- in the first place?
1: Actually, it's a good question. Initially, I wanted to be. a remember as a child, I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a pediatrician. And around 11th grade, I kind of came to the realization that I was okay in the sciences, but it wasn't my strong subject. And, of course, to be a doctor, uh, the sciences are a very major part of the curriculum that you would take. Mm-hmm. So I decided may- I want to work with children in some capacity, and I thought maybe about going to children's television. And when I entered Oneonta, that's what I had in mind, somehow doing some educational television. Mm-hmm. And as a freshman, I remember it's the second semester. I took one credit pass/fail class, career exploration. Uh, you took. I'm uh, part of the class. was taking an aptitude test, and I scored high in social work. And as part of the assignment, was whatever you scored high in, was doing some research into that field and see if it's something that you would be interested in taking. And I did research into social work. and I felt that this is a this was what I would like to do. I knew it going into it. I know it's not the financially, it's not the highest paying field, but it just really appealed to me the the nature of the work. Sure. And since my freshman year, that's why I decided to pursue. Mm.
0: So you went to the University of Connecticut?
1: Just for one year. Uh uh-huh. I, I got my undergraduate degree from Oneonta State College. Right. Went one year. Um, after I graduated Oneonta, I went straight to University of Connecticut. Mm-hmm. But again, I only was there one year, and at, with the, in consultation with my advisors, it was thought that I should get more experience in social work, and I didn't return to social work school until 1988. That's when I went to Stony Brook.
0: And oh, that's my, right.
1: And I got my master's degree from Stony Brook in um, May of 1990.
0: And then after Stony Brook, what happened?
1: My, my first job was doing intensive case management, working with mentally ill adults. I was only there for nine months, and then I got a job working, actually the agency I work for now, I was working uh, in their group home division. I got a job in their group home division uh, working with children, residing community residences. And I was there from 1992 to 1993, and I enjoyed it. only thing, I was living in Long Island, and the group home was in Brooklyn. I was traveling... 50 miles, at least 50 miles each way
2: Mm.
1: per day, and more because a lot of driving was quite on the job. And even though I never had interest in hospital social work, I saw an ad in Newsday, the Long Island newspaper, for a social work position at Stony Brook Hospital, working the pediatric ward. And I thought, you know, this was eight miles from my home as opposed to 50 miles from my home. it paid $6,000 more a year. They're still working with children. So I decided to apply for the job. I called in for an interview and was accepted. You know, obviously they offered me the position. But even though I was working with children, hospital social workers was a lot different than what I was doing in foster care. Uh, in foster care, you have a case order of around 20 children who you keep for a relatively long period of time. Working closely with the children, and their families, hospital social work was very different. I had forty bed, forty five beds, of uh, which, like each week, there would be a turnover of forty new beds. Children would be discharged, and other children had to, you know, were hospitalized. I would be assigned to them. It was just very different, and it just wasn't for me. In consultation with the, my supervisor and director, is agreed upon that even though I had good social work skills, hospital social work was not for me, and they let me go. I always share that social work to me is a generic term like athlete. You could be a boxer, a tennis player, a figure skater, a baseball player. You're all under that generic term of athlete, but just because you're good at one sport like figure skating doesn't mean that you're going to be good at tennis or baseball. Mm -hmm. And It was that way with social work. I I, I enjoyed working with children in foster care, but hospital social work was just it was so different for me, and it wasn't for me. I went after that. I worked with in a group home for with mentally retarded adults, and I was there for a little bit more than a year, and I returned in 1996 to the agency I worked before with, when I worked with children group homes. Now, the name of the agency is St. Christopher Auditly Services for Children and Families. I left on very good terms. I returned there in 1996, Uh, Again, working with children at foster care, and I've been there ever since. i also like to point out that in addition to my professional experience, I also serve on various community-based committees and task forces dealing with matters of prejudice reduction and race community and and the like. That equally is a very important part of what I call my social work life. I don't get paid for it. I do that on the side. Mm -hmm. But when I went to school, I... uh, I was looking to add a concentration or focus, let me say, on community outreach and services as well as case management. And professionally, what I do is case management working for the foster care agency. But on, with my volunteer experience, I do more of the community outreach, the community organizing mm-hmm. aspects of social work, yeah. organizing events and functions, dealing with prejudice reduction and racial harmony and the like.
0: hmm now, Mark, what at what point in your life did you become a Baha'i?
1: I became Baha'i in, this November will make 21 years mm-hmm. um, that, I be, that I've been a Baha'i. Mm-hmm. It's hard to believe, believe that it's been that long. Yeah. And I studied the Baha'i faith for three years before deciding to to enroll into the faith.
0: Now, what were the circumstances
1: that you ran into the Baha'i faith? It's actually, um, I'm, I'm an example of someone who found the Baha'i faith through the local newspaper. Mm. In college, as I mentioned, I got interested in learning about different philosophies and teachings. I really, in college, became enamored with the philosophy and teachings of Mahatma Gandhi. And still today, I have a great love and respect for Mahatma Gandhi and his teachings. And I enjoyed learning about different religions and philosophies. At that time, I got involved with yoga and meditation, was looking into various the New Age movements, And just like learning about different religions, I was always involved with clubs that promoted unity and fellowship. In college, the type of clubs that I belonged to was like a, I can't remember the exact name, but it dealt with racial harmony, human relations, interfaith endeavors. In 1983, the Smithtown Baha'i community put in articles and ads in the local newspaper, the Smithtown Messenger, listing the basic principles of the Baha'i faith. The oneness of humanity, the elimination of all forms of prejudice, equality of women and men, harmony of science and religion, the um, uniting of the nations into the world commonwealth, establishment of world peace. And these were things that I was always, you know, I always believed in. And when I saw these, these, I remember when I first saw seeing seen these ads, I said, this sounds interesting. Maybe someday I'll call this group and see what they're all about. But I didn't pick up the phone right away. If there was a holy day, there'd be an article in the newspaper on the significance of the holy day. 1983, especially, was the height of the persecutions of the Baha'is in Iran. And there'd be an article about the, how the Baha'is, they were being unjustly persecuted, imprisoned, some even killed. And I always felt for oppressed people. And I remember, you know, just kept on seeing these these articles and ads on and off in the newspaper. It was a weekly newspaper. Not every week would there be something in there by the Baha'is, but a number of times. And finally, they had either a half-page ad or maybe even a full-page ad. I can't quite remember. But it was a list of upcoming fireside talks that was going to be held in the community. And I remember it was the first Saturday of each month. And the first fireside talk was listed for November. It was that November. And was, the title of the talk was, What is a Baha'i? I thought, you know, that sounds like a nice first type of talk to attend to. I've, you know, seen these ads for around, I don't know, for a period of like four or five months, saying one of these days I'm going to call this Baha'i organization. At that time, I really didn't understand or appreciate that the Baha'i faith was indeed a religion. Mm-hmm. I was thinking it was some type of a spiritual fellowship organization, um, fraternity, It's kind of like a spiritual fraternal association, kind of like the Freemasons or something like that. Mm-hmm well anyway they had this ad for a meeting called what is a baha'i I thought that sounded like a nice first type of meeting to go to let me see what being a baha'i is all about so i picked up the telephone called the number in the ad and the uh... woman who answers, who turned uh, it the secretary of the community and still still is the secretary told me uh... gave me the address for where the talk was going to be and i attended it i remember whatever that first saturday of November of 1983 was. And what I was always what I was weary about, I was always, and still today, I have a problem who, with people who tried to proselytize who, to force their religion on me, to say, our religions the only way is the best way, and you must and what, whatever path you are following is false. and you must give up that path and follow the path of which you know is the only true path. But when they went to the first Baha'i meeting, You know, I was just hoping this wasn't going to be one of those type of religions that was going to force themselves on me. Mm -hmm. And what I liked is that they made it quite clear that in the Baha'i faith, it's prohibited, forbidden for Baha'is to proselytize, to force their religion on people. They just lovingly, they seek to lovingly share the Baha'i faith with those who are interested in learning about it with no pressure whatsoever. And what I also liked is how they had a deep respect and reverence for the other religions. Not only saying that the Bahai faith is not the only way, but in essence, having this great love for Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, and all the other religions, Islam, and all, mm-hmm. and that really impressed me. But I went to the went to the first fireside that November, and they saw I was interested, and they told me that they were having these Thursday night deepenings. At that time, it was on the book by Abdu'l-Baha. Uh, promulgation of universal peace, which collection of his talks that he gave uh, when he was here in the United States in 1912. Now,
0: who is Abdu'l-Bahá, Mark?
1: Abdu'l-Bahá is the son of the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Baha'u'llah lived from 1817 through 1892 mm-hmm. and received a revelation that he was a new prophet, messenger of God. And upon his passing, he had... Assigned in his will and testament that Abdul Baha, his eldest son, was to succeed him as the leader of the Baha'i faith. And Abdul Baha, who has many titles, among them is the Master, as he's considered to be the one to perfect to live perfectly the Baha'i life, uh, personified exactly what a Baha'i is to be, and we're told to follow the example of Abdul Baha, which is a, another of his titles. is the um, the perfect exemplar, he's the, one of the unique features of the Baha'i faith is that with this covenant established by Baha'u'llah, in which he named his successors, it protected, it protected the Baha'i faith from breaking up into different schisms and denominations and sects, which is what has happened to the previous religions. So, Abdu'l-Baha was the one appointed by Baha'u'llah to succeed him, and he led the Baha'i faith from the time of Baha'u'llah's passing in 1892 to his own passing in 1921. And in 1912, uh, Abdu'l-Baha made a journey here to the United States and Canada, where he went to different parts of the countries for a period of 239 days to share the teachings of his father. A lot of these talks are collected in this book called The Promulgation of Universal Peace. Mm. And back at that time in nineteen eighty three the Smithtown community was having Thursday night deepenings on on this particular book. And they saw it after I went to my first fireside meeting, they saw that I was interested in it interested and in, invited me, again, no pressure, but invited me to attend the Thursday night meetings and I graciously accepted. And if they were holy day, you know, there were other as I said, the first Saturday of each month was a fireside, so they welcomed me back, which most of them I did attend. They brought me to other communities who were having firesides, and I attended, I attended many of them. If there was a Holy Day celebration, I attended many of the Holy Day celebrations. But again, at this time, the Baha'i faith was just a one, one of many different religions and philosophies that I was interested in learning more about. I, at that time, I really didn't have any intention of becoming a Baha'i. But I enjoyed being with the Bahais and being the company, and I I like the basic teachings of the Baha'i faith. What happened that I finally became Baha'i? Yeah, Bahá'u'lláh makes a major claim. Let me just backtrack. All the religions foretell a time that when there would be this great prophet, this great messenger of God, who would come to unite all the peoples and all the religions into one universal faith, ushering in an era of universal peace and justice throughout the world eventually culminating in the establishment of the kingdom of God on Earth. And Baha'u'llah, Baha'is belief, is is this one foretold by all the religions, the promised one of Christianity, the promised one of Judaism, the promised one of Islam, of Hinduism, of Buddhism, of the Zoroastrian religion, even of the tribal religions here in the Americas and Australia, Africa, and the like. All of these religions foretold this time. When this great prophet of God would come. And Baha'u'llah, Baha'is believe, is this one, uh, the promised one of all religions. And really, for the first 35 months, I never gave much attention or focus or emphasis on Baha'u'llah. I liked the Baha'is, I liked the teachings of the Baha'i faith that he brought, but I never gave that much thought to Baha'u'llah's claim. And then finally, that month of November 1986, I turned my focus on the claim of Baha'u'llah. Baha'u'llah was born November 12th of 1817, and his birth, the anniversary of his birth, is a holy day celebration for Baha'i. And I remember going to the celebration in Smithtown, which was an intercommunity in Long Island, especially. We have a lot of intercommunity gatherings and celebrations, and I was just so impressed seeing people of all diverse races, ethnicities. Coming together to celebrate this holy day. I remember there was a prayer, a particular prayer, said in seven different languages that greatly, greatly impressed me. I felt like I was on the outside looking in. And for the remainder of the month, I really gave a lot of meditation, reflection on this claim of Baha'u'llah. And I'm from a Jewish background, as I mentioned at mm-hmm. the beginning of this interview. And I just came to believe that Baha'u'llah that he was the one who moses had foretold that the other jewish prophets ezekiel daniel isaiah and so forth all had made prophecies about his coming And in essence i felt that to be true to my jewish faith to be true to moses and the other prophets that they would want me to accept baha'u'llah that in essence by not accepting baha'u'llah i would be uh, rejecting what they had prepared the way for I remember that Monday before Thanksgiving uh, of that year, that whole day, I was just going back with that weekend, but culminating in that day. I was just going back and forth, back and forth. And I, in my heart, I felt that Baha'u'llah was the, the one of all the religions. Even as a Jew, person growing up in the Jewish faith, there's a backtrack of little, You know, I still had a great deal of love and reverence for Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. for Muhammad, for Buddha and all. A lot of was really due to the teachings of Mahatma, of Mahatma Gandhi, because his teachings were very comparable to those I was finding the Baha'i faith. Uh, he had a great reverence for all the religions. And finally that evening, it just I felt, as I said before, I, I was a religion, and I wanted to take the step in. So I remember calling the Baha'is in Smithtown, um, saying I wanted to declare. Uh, I wanted to give myself, for whatever reason, six to, uh, this was right before Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. of that year, 83... No, 86, I mean. And just make sure this wasn't a spur-of-the-moment thing, that this is something... I wasn't just acting on the emotion, that this is something I really wanted to do. So I set the date, you know, I would... We have a Sunday... and still do have a Sunday school. I said, you know, after Sunday school... This is a
0: Baha'i Sunday school?
1: Baha'i Sunday school. Okay. Which um, we call Discovery Center. It was called the Junior Hami Discovery Center. She was a Baha'i who... Um, sadly passed away, I think, late 30s, early 40s, and she had just passed away a couple of years before, and they named this Sunday school in her honor, mm. announced at that Sunday school that I was going to be you know, declaring my belief. And Baha'u'llah later that afternoon, I went over to the Smithtown Baha'i community, one of the homes, and signed my declaration card that afternoon. Mm. As I said, this November will make 21 years. It's yeah. hard to believe it's been that long,
0: but it right. yeah. yeah. What was your family's reaction to you becoming a Baha'i?:
1: It was kind of like, if it makes you happy, mm-hmm. uh, I'm from a, as I mentioned many times, from a Jewish background, uh, J- raised Jewish, uh, participated in the various I was born but in America, especially, among many Jewish people, Judaism is not so much it, it's a tradition, it's a cultural it, it's a way of keeping the culture alive, the tradition. but many Jewish people don't necessarily have a belief in God. Many of them do, but I'm from a family where was more culturally, traditionally Jewish, not so much religiously Jewish. Mm-hmm. So I think there was some surprise that I actually believe in God, that I enjoyed praying. But my family, they uh, met the Baha'is, and they've, they've always liked the Baha'is as people. They liked the basic teachings of the Baha'i faith. And their reaction was one of, if it makes you happy, that's wonderful. You, know, you have our blessings. Yeah. I've heard of other Baha'is whose family have not been nearly as receptive. Many have been, but some where their family gets very distraught when their children announce that they've become Baha'is. Mm. Fortunately, that wasn't my case with my family. They've always you know, been very supportive of the Baha'i faith, and, and they like Baha'is. the Baha'is as people.
0: Mm-hmm. And how did you see the Baha'i faith change your life?
1: It's a good question. I I often reflect on that. I, I wonder what would my life be like if I never became Baha'i. Yeah. I think I would still be basically a good person.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I would probably still be a social worker. Mm-hmm. It's so much a part of my life, though. My a focus of my life. The basic thoughts that I have during the day often is of the Baha'i faith, not in a, not in an obsessive type of way, mm-hmm. but I'm often. You know, so much of my activities revolve around the Baha'i faith and Baha'i activities. Mm -hmm. Before I was a Baha'i, I I would pray occasionally, but it wasn't a focal point of my life. Reading religious scriptures was not necessarily a focal point of my life, even though, as I mentioned, in college and afterwards, I really enjoyed learning about the different religions. Mm -hmm. In the Baha'i faith, there aren't many restrictions, but there are a few, and... Uh, we're not supposed to drink alcoholic beverages unless for truly medicinal reasons. Not that I was a heavy drinker, you know. In college, I would go out to the clubs and would you know, would drink occasionally. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Long Island, unfortunately, that is a form, a popular form of of recreation. And not remember- not just not not just Long Island. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Many parts of me. <laughs> so, you know, what are you going to do tonight, Willa? Whatever club is, you know, they're having a special two for one night <laughs> or uh, quarter beer night. Mm-hmm. And I was partaking in that. Mm-hmm. It was really Mahatma Gandhi uh, who got me more, not that I was an alcoholic or anything like that, mm-hmm. but I was kind of, you know, I said, I'm going to these bars, I don't enjoy it, but what else is there to do? Mm-hmm. And that started to go more to these uh, spiritual type of places. Mm -hmm. I got more into the yoga, as I mentioned, more into the meditation. If there were lectures going on about a particular philosophy or religion, I would look to attend it. Um, I got involved somewhat with the New Age movements at the time. And I just enjoyed going to these more than going to the bars. And I know Mahatma Gandhi and his teachings encouraged people not to drink. When I started studying the Baha'i faith and saw that they alcohol and mind-altering drugs were prohibited, it wasn't a major barrier for me because mm-hmm. I, by the time I even started studying the Baha'i Faith, I had given that stuff up. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't... I know for some people, when they learned that that is one of the restrictions, is the real test for them is a challenge. Right. Uh, fortunately for me, by the time I started investigating the Baha'i Faith, that wasn't really a barrier. Right.
0: Earlier in the interview, you mentioned some activities that you were involved with that had to do with race unity, and I can only assume that the Baha'i faith somehow influenced you in, in that direction?
1: Sure. As I mentioned, I became Baha'i in 1986. 1988, I was asked to join the Baha'i Race Unity Committee of Long Island, and still i am a member, a servant on this committee. The committee was formed as a way of promoting, as a way for the Baha'is to be in the forefront, the promotion of racial harmony and um, fighting racism, and also as a way of educating the Baha'is ourselves into this, what we consider to be the most vital and challenging issue facing the American nation. I represent the Baha'i Race Unity Committee of Long Island on various like minded task forces and committees. Earlier today, as a matter of fact, I, I represent the Baha'i Race Unity Committee of Long Island on the Council on prejudice reduction, which every year has a conference on reducing prejudice through education, where schools throughout Long Island come together to share what's happening in their respective school districts to promote racial harmony to fight prejudice. and I've served on this the planning committee for this annual conference. I think I've been on this committee now almost thirteen, fourteen years. We just had the conference earlier today as a matter of fact, and I also serve on the Suffolk County, Long Island, uh, Long Island physically is made up of Brooklyn and Queens, Nassau and Suffolk counties. Often when you say Long Island though, most people just think of Suffolk and Nassau County. Right. And I serve in the Suffolk County Interfaith Anti Bias Task Force and in Smithtown, the township which I live, I serve in the Smithtown Anti Bias Task Force. Again it addressing issues of bias and prejudice which occur in the town or the county and speaking out when these acts do occur, and also its a way of being proactive to help establish an environment, if you will, promoting racial harmony and having an environment where biased acts are, are not welcomed in the community. Mm-hmm.
0: Tell me about the conference today.
1: It's always rewarding to see what the innovative things that the schools throughout, throughout Long Island are doing to promote amongst their students. In the morning, there were, I think, 10 workshops. In the afternoon, there were another 10 workshops. And you could only choose one to ten. There's so many, you know, it's hard to choose because they're all very important, valuable programs that are going on within the schools. It covers a wide variety. Uh, It could talk about communities where they have a wide, rich diversity of uh, cultures, how to understand the people's cultures, work together with the people. It talks about the dangers many of our youth. Through the internet, cyberspace, hate groups that try to have recruit youth in a way of becoming aware of their tactics and what you could do to combat it. If you feel that your child may be getting influenced, what you could do to steer them away from it. Well, even this year, they have uh, one of the workshops dealt with understanding a better knowledge of the different religions in Long Island. It's mostly geared towards teachers. Uh, You don't have to be a teacher to to attend this conference, but most of the attendees are school teachers or or school administrators. It's really sharing with giving them an idea of how to deal with the different ethnicities in their classroom, the different religions they might find among their student body. One of the keynote speakers was a young girl who grew up in Rwanda, and when, when the Rwandan genocide took place in 1994... She was only nine years old at the time, and tragically, her both her parents and her six siblings were killed in this um, massacre, genocidal campaign. She was the only uh, survivor, and she came here shortly after the uh, after they put a stop to the killings. And she had an uncle here in the United States, and she came here. And she just talked about what it was like growing up in Rwanda, her experiences there, and. Some of the activities she's involved with now. She's only 22 years old. She started her own human rights organization. Mm. That's just a glimpse of the conferences. As I said, this was the 15th annual conference. I think I've attended all but the very first one. Mm. It's nice just to see the many wonderful things happening here on Long Island. But I know these programs are not just limited to Long Island. That probably go to many, most areas throughout the United States, you're going to find comparable things happening within the respective schools. Mm-hmm.
0: So, Mark, what does the future hold for you?
1: Well, personally, I'm looking to continue as in my social work profession. Mm-hmm. I've been with my current employer since 1996. Well, I'm always keeping my eyes and ears open. Mm-hmm. I enjoy my job. I enjoy working with the children their families. Mm-hmm. As a Baha'i, I've looked to continue being active within the Baha'i community here in Smithtown and and the Greater Long Island area. Mm -hmm. In the Baha'i faith, I mentioned that we don't look to proselytize; that we're really forbidden to, but that we feel that we're in possession of a precious jewel, which we lovingly seek to share with others. And firesides or informal gatherings that Baha'is hold within their homes as a way of sharing the Baha'i faith with those who are interested in learning more about it. And I enjoy giving talks on the Baha'i Faith, and I set as a personal lifetime goal for myself to give at least one five-side talk in each of the 50 states. And mm. to date, I've done 37 of the 50 states, and I'm uh, looking to you know, continue to, to travel. When the, one of the nice things with my social work is that we do get a lot of vacation time relatively compared to other jobs. I get... Twenty-four days off a year, which, if you do the math, it's five weeks minus a day. Mm. On my vacation, I often look to go away to to give talks on the Baha'i faith. Mm. As I said, I've spoken in thirty-seven dates so far. It doesn't preclude me from going back to a state and giving another talk. <laughs> I go to give at least one 5 side talk, but I'm you know always. You're open to, uh, open to, to, going back to a state if that have me. I've written a Baha'i book that was recently published called "Divine Journey: Exploring the Baha'i Faith," which is available on through the local bookstore. You could order it or Amazon.com. And
0: what's the book about?
1: It's an introductory book on the Baha'i faith, but it's it's different from the other many. There's many fine introductory books on the Baha'i faith that introduces the Baha'i faith and its teachings to so those interested in learning more about it. But I want to. Uh, take kind of a different path to presenting the Baha'i faith. It's really from the talks I've prepared and given over the years, and I liken it to a gondola ride. That's the analogy I I use, that a gondola, one sits back on the boat, and the the oarsmen, whatever, would take the participants on a a ride where they explain the different aspects of whatever they're touring, and it's really a guided tour of the Baha'i faith and its teachings. Where I take the reader through the various teachings of the Baha'i Faith, I have a, I have a introductory prologue. Just giving a basic overview of the key central figures of the Baha'i Faith and its teachings, its, its history, and then the book itself. I have a chapter on the f- opening chapter is what the world needs now is love, which focuses upon the whole idea of how we were created to love one another, to be a service to one another. How we're all members of the same one human family. The next chapter talks about how peace is more than just an end to war. I have a chapter on world unity, that uh, many people are skeptical and fearful of the ideas of this world, like a united world, but it's one of the court, central teachings of the Baha'i faith, and I explain how it's not this oppressive, totalitarian government that people fear, but that's how it's ultimately going to be much more freeing and liberating for humanity that, um, you know, how we've progressed from the different stages going all all the way down from the family unit to the current nation-state and how the next logical progression is to go for the nations of the world to unite into a world commonwealth. Uh, I have a chapter on the purpose of life from a Baha'i perspective, that of knowing and worshiping God and what that means, a a chapter on which I titled Nice Guys Finish First. (laughs) Um, which is a take-off on the saying by the late baseball manager, Nice Guys Finish Last, Leo DeRocha, who came up with this adage, Nice Guys Finish Last. It it talks about the challenge of living a Baha'i life in today's world and living by the virtues and values advocated by Baha'u'llah, but how ultimately that is how we will get ahead. Then a chapter on um, life after death, how really focusing upon that if we live a life of service to others, I think of the welfare of others before ourselves, and this is the way we conduct ourselves, that we're preparing ourselves properly for life in the next world, that the life here on Earth is just a per- preparatory world, if you, world, if you will, mm-hmm. for the next world. The way uh, you see now do you, how a woman who's pregnant with a baby has a responsibility on how she cares for herself to prepare the baby for life in this world in essence, we're pregnant with our souls, and how we live our lives depends, you know, if we're uh, properly preparing souls for the next world. Mm-hmm. Um, then a chapter on, uh, because many people, I find, have not heard about the Baha'i Faith, or if they have, they may only have a vague understanding and idea of what the Baha'i Faith is all about and who Baha'u'llah is. Uh, I have a chapter addressing some of the more common misconceptions and misunderstandings people have about Baha'u'llah and about the Baha'i Faith, which myself, when I was investigating the Baha'i Faith, I had many of these same misconceptions and misunderstandings. So it just clarifies, not in a defensive way, but some of the more common misunderstandings that people have. It's helpful to understand what and to understand what something is to gain a good understanding of what, what something is not. Uh, mm-hmm. And then there's a closing chapter on the whole subject of race unity and the building of a prejudice-free world and a closing epilogue of what it, just what it means to be a Baha'i and to live a Baha'i life. So it, you know, again, I liken it to a gondola ride. I take the, the reader on a gentle ride, a gentle tour, if you will, through the Baha'i faith and its teachings. My aim is that someone who has never heard the word Baha'i, who has never heard of Baha'u'llah, has no understanding or idea of what the Baha'i faith is, after reading this book, will at least have a good understanding and appreciation of the Baha'i faith and its teachings and hopefully would want to learn more about, about the Baha'i Faith.
0: And what's the title of the book again?
1: It's called Divine Journey, Exploring the Baha'i Faith.
0: Well, Mark, the best of luck to you, and sure. thank you very much. Thank you very much, Warren. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Mark Henson, a Baha'i social worker and author of the book Divine Journey, Exploring the Baha'i Faith. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www. Perspective.com For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
3: Have I created thee No